0: Everybody's ready? We're all back? Are we all on this yep. digital this digital communication device here, Brent? Brent, are you here? I think we are. Brent's here. <laughs> okay. Brent's here. Yep. All right. Okay. So, um, you know, it's another day, another week, another awesome time. Uh, we're going to do some more learning. And uh, so we're going to kick the show off. This is what we do every time. We say the same thing over and over. It's like you're going to get used to this. So welcome to the Hot Owl. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Brian Carpenter. And with me,
1: Brent Piatti, good morning.
0: Brent, uh, good morning. Uh, I'm going to say good morning, uh, and I, I still continue to love you. I'm going to forgive you for the Patriots jacket that you have on. We're not going to get into that. I don't want to talk about it. Uh, I mean, as much as I hate the Eagles, I hate the Patriots more. So, uh, But I still love you.
1: I appreciate that.
0: Yeah. So the goal of this show is not to talk about uh, the Super Bowl, which is in the past. I guarantee it. Uh, but rather, it's talking about herding digital sheep. Um, And it's almost as difficult as getting three people on a Skype, uh, but maybe by a factor of like a thousand. And so, you know, there's microservices and application scale, and all these things are causing new types of problems. uh, And getting your kind of virtual arms around them is increasingly difficult. Uh, So, we're going to talk a little bit about container management and architecture types and, you know, really just kind of strategy for information architectures around that. And, um, you know, how people are trying to manage container sprawl, right? Because, you know, containers like VMs are free, right? I mean, you know, so, and to do that, we did what we always do, which was we brought on an expert to talk about, you know, their experience, their theories, and how they're looking at solving these types of problems. Uh, and so with us, uh, we have Mark Teeley. Mark, welcome to the Hot aisle.
2: Oh, thanks for having me, Brent and Brian. Um, this is a uh, 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 exciting time for the container world, for sure. But you said earlier that uh, there was going to be some learning on the show. Is there going to be somebody else joining us? Because uh, you've only got me over here right now.
0: <laughs> well, we learned one thing. Mark is humble, um, but you know, Mark, you're also a couple of other things, right? You are uh, you are currently, if we have this right, we do this every time. We stalk people and then we verify that we got it right. That um, you are the CIO and chief strategy officer for AppSara. Is that right? that's correct that's correct so i think you probably know a few things around containers and that's why we brought you here um and on top of that another really cool thing um is that you're actually also the chairman of the technical standards committee for the idca which is the international data center authority
2: that's correct yeah it's um it's an exciting effort I, i i will have to admit it's a lofty effort uh to try to accomplish what we're doing with the framework but um uh, as a longtime IT guy, I mean, my background, my history is IT, uh, not on the vendor side, but on the buy side. And um, I can tell you that uh, there are few, uh, like you could count them on two hands, companies in the world that can accurately assess their IT at any one point in time, um, from data center site selection up through application security. And um, we're trying to create a framework that would help customers uh, uh, do that.
0: Yeah, you know, you, since you brought it up, that's actually kind of uh, interesting. I was just reading an article this week about, that Etsy put out there, and there was some interesting feedback on it. But Etsy said they went through and they, had, they put out all of their decision criteria and a lot of things, including how long it took them. So for a two-year contract in the cloud, they spent five months organizing teams and evaluating the cloud, and the end result was essentially, and I'm summarizing a bit, a 10% savings across the board with who they chose, right? And so, you know, some of the questions came up of like, okay, so we know you had to, they, they, you know, they claim, hey, we had to put some teams together and do a couple other things (laughs) and maybe that makes sense. But they essentially spent five months to make a decision to go with a single provider based on their criteria and 10% savings. Now, the savings may not have meant everything to them, um, but it was interesting that it took them five months to pick something they're only going to use for two years. Uh, And that sounds very analogous with your kind of, your feedback there around kind of just even... Uh, framework criteria and decision-making criteria.
2: Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, I know we want to talk uh, some about containers specifically today, and it's definitely related to this topic. But um, the since the beginning of time, every IT organization has attempted to put up that one chart in their in their company or in their um, in their main conference room or in the CIO's office or something that illustrated the connection of all the systems and the value of all the systems to the company. And every single one of them were wrong like 10 minutes later. And no one could ever understand them. Uh, and the the complexity of the environment, um, notwithstanding the fact that most companies have way more applications in their environment than they did 30 years ago, uh, and the facts that you have things like uh, SaaS to worry about uh, and hybrid environments to worry about and multi-cloud to worry about, you can imagine that this, um, this difficulty of measuring what you have today and accurately assessing how what you want to take from what you have and put it in the public cloud will respond in the public cloud, one. And two, what it might actually cost you in the long run or what other he- um, headaches it might cause you from being torn away from the existing environment. So it is not an easy job, and um, – you know, customers. Uh, even though customers tend to ignore it in the long run, people still worry about lock-in. Um, uh, they worry about uh, sprawl, as you mentioned uh, early on, and uh, these are all main factors in in um, the consideration for going uh, heavy into the public cloud.
0: Yeah, I mean that's awesome, and it's it's you know a lot of this stuff is extremely interesting, and extremely challenging. I know personally, I I used to have to try to draw things like that out, and uh, you know, you always want to be able to show everybody connections and. Frankly, you know, dependencies, right? Like on top of this right. connectivity, uh, like dependency charts. And today, you know we're at like you know with the with the number of services that are out there and the sprawl of the services that are out there, being able to show dependency is, I would say almost nearly impossible yet. I'm sure somebody will come by afterwards and tell us that they can solve it. Uh, and if you think you can solve documenting uh, infrastructure connectivity and dependency connectivity, you are welcome to holler at Brent and put up a time on the podcast because, uh, I want to hear it, right? So, in the meantime, you know, everybody's solving something. Um, another, you know, th- there's a lot of other interesting things in your past that we love to talk about. Brent always finds really cool things. You even made a stop over at our good friends VMware. So, uh, you know, tell me, tell me what a job like director of data center strategy at VMware sounds like.
2: Well, it's uh, that's one of the most um, uh, interesting starts and finishes uh, of the jobs that I've had especially considering that uh, I was only there for about two and a half years. I um, I joined specifically to solve their um, logistics problem uh, for the engineering team. They were buying around $80 million a year at that point of hardware, which is a lot of hardware for a 3,000-person company at the time. Um, and it was taking them about 100 days to get the hardware on the floor in the data center and usable by the engineers from the time they ordered it. And so they wanted me to come in and help them fix that. Well, that, that took me about six weeks and it was fixed and we had it from a hundred days, well, 97 and a half ish down to about 32, um, in six weeks. And, uh, people felt like that was good. We were, they were happy with that. And we continued to, to noodle with it, but, um, that was a, 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 obviously a giant benefit, but as part of my, um, my work there, I'm, I'm, I tend to be a vacuum filler. And so when I see a vacuum, I want to fill it. And, I saw a vacuum around asset management. I saw a vacuum around um, how we did integrations when we bought a company. I saw a vacuum around our data center ownership uh, um, and building strategy. And so over the course of um, the first four months on the job, I took over responsibility for all of those functions, uh, most of which were effectively brand new to the company. And um, on the data center side specifically, uh, when I started, they were just toying with the idea of building a new data center, either in Oklahoma in an old Avaya plant, so it would have been a brown build um, in a place that um, uh, would have been fed by coal, uh, and the other site was uh, Wenatchee, Washington. Uh, the benefit of Wenatchee, Washington, in my mind, was that being uh, f- power being fed by the local dam meant that it was at least greenish. And if you, uh, when I look at uh, the data center, I see it as a strategic example of what the company is, especially as a technology company. And um, when I looked at uh, what VMware was doing, we weren't doing that at all. We were just saying, oh, there's a property. Is it cheap? Does it have power? Let's build on it. And I thought it would be a black eye for what appeared to be a green and, and efficiency-oriented company to build in a place that was using coal-fired power. So um, I helped convince them to go with Wenatchee. And then um, when I saw that uh, facilities alone was gonna be addressing the design and build of the new facility, I said, no, that's not uh, um, an option, uh, certainly not one for success. And so I took over the project and um, built a team around facilities engineering and IT, um, and also created a steering committee within the executive teams to ensure that we were highlighting opportunities within the data center around things like, um, you know, showing best in class as far as efficiency, being green, um, uh, drink your own champagne activities, things like that. So um, anyway, yeah, long story. I could go into much more about the growing of VMware, but it was fun.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, you've had a a long career. Uh, Clearly you're recognized in the industry one of the things that I, you know, you're you're a, you're a member of a bunch of boards today. Uh, one of them that I saw from your passage, I found interesting, uh, was the Cloud Native Computing Foundation. You were a member of the board there. Uh, yep. Tell tell us about that and uh, where you think that's heading, and and about your participation uh, in that today.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of good to be said about the CNCF, um, and if it wasn't for the fact uh, um, that there's such enormous amount of interest at the level of participation that uh, AppSera was in. Um, I would probably still be on the board, uh, but there was a lot of interest, and they were looking for more um, uh, end-user focused companies. And so my two-year stint was up at the end of last year. Um, but uh, the benefit of um, CNCF really is, in theory, you know, nothing is perfect, and there, there's no guarantee that this will work. But the the benefit and the focus of um, CNCF is putting more concentrated cross-industry focus on some of the key technologies enabling the future of cloud and cloud use, right? And, um, you know, that started, certainly it started more as a Kubernetes project, but has morphed into much more. Um, Whether it's trying to find a unified format for containers or um, Prometheus, uh, you know, better monitoring, uh, et cetera, better security tools, all of these things are crucial um, at some level in getting us to avoid what was created when VMs first hit the market and effectively they're all called VMs, but they might as well all been different from different planets because we couldn't share, we couldn't ship, we couldn't move, uh, we couldn't manage with one tool, et cetera. And so this really is an effort to try to um, level the playing field for how people use
1: compute. Sure. Sure. Now, now Mark, one of the things that I found interesting, and this is less technical and more career and career advice for our listeners out there, as a member of multiple boards over your career, first of all, how do you get into that? And then how do you maintain activity with amongst all of those, uh, at the same time? Like what is the expectation of a board member such as yourself?
2: Yeah. So there's really kind of, um, two answers, uh, to that. The first answer is how did I, or the first question is how do I, um, get involved? And the second question is, um, how do you maintain, um, activity, The getting involved thing, um, is, is a mix. In some cases, I've just been approached. I've had people literally say, Mark, uh, we've been watching what you do. We like what you've written. We like what you said at an event. Uh, we've seen your career experience or some combination of the above. And we think you'd be a good fit for helping us in um, approaching the market or in defining our product more clearly or some combination. Um, and so there's that where it's just literally a blind approach. And then there's other cases where. I sit down with really bright people. I mean, there's just so many smart people working on projects in the industry. And when I get lucky enough to sit down with some of them, uh, I mean, like most, one of the most recent ones was Rob Hirschfeld uh, at Rackin. I mean, the guy is freaking brilliant. He's, a, he's an awesome dude to begin with. Um, and just sitting down with him talking, um, it just came to, to the point where I said, you know, if you ever need any help with anything, please let me know. And a month later, he said, yeah, I want you to be on the board of advisors. And so um, sometimes it's just that simple. Uh, I have an interest in in what the industry does. I have an interest in in helping to progress the industry. And by virtue of that interest, uh, I get involved in a lot of conversations that end up leading to this kind of thing. And then from a participation standpoint, um, Rob, uh, I'm picking on Rob again, but Rob's one of the better ones. Um, of all the boards uh, from an advisory standpoint that I've been a part of uh, for technology companies, um, I'm maybe eight or so by now, um, some of which are active and some which aren't, the sad truth is that most of them are not very good at it, right? They start out with thinking, okay, this would be great, you know, Mark's this or Mark's that or Brian's this or Brian's that. Um, but uh, then they get caught up in the firestorm of daily work, and they don't, um, they don't take advantage of their advisors as much as they should. And then the advisors just become a bunch of names on the wall. And so I would prefer, uh, like with the company I work for, or being an advisor, that um, uh, use and abuse me or, or you know just let me go. But don't, don't just waste uh, your own time and effort um, uh, signing up people and giving away stock uh, if you're not going to put them to use, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So cool. Uh, thanks for that bit of advice. Now let's let's kind of shift gears. Clearly you have a passion for for technology and in this industry. When did it start and how did it start? Was it an upbringing that you had with your parents or was it something you fell into and you're like, "Wow, I'm actually pretty interested or good at this."
2: Yeah, so it's a strange thing, you know. Most people that um that know me um peripherally, and I and I'll get back to the kind of the beginning of the story, but most people that know me Um, not as a direct friend but through you know seeing me all the time at events or you know at conferences et cetera, assumed that if they were to come to my house that a robot would open the door for me and that the music would automatically play what i like based on my mood when i got out of the car all that stuff and the truth is is that that's actually not me i didn't start like most true tech geeks start where they were telling tearing apart a uh, um a a compact or something, you know, in their garage as kids in high school. Um, I started in IT purely by accident. Uh, I was literally sitting in a lobby, sharing time, waiting for um, a ride home. uh, And the lady that used to run the data center in the company I was at at the time used to sit with me and wait for her husband. And we were talking uh, one day and she says, hey, you know, I've got an opening upstairs in the computer room. Uh, You want to try for a job? And I said, well, I don't even know how to, and she said, it's a computer operator job. And I said, I don't even know how to spell computer operator. And um, and she said, well, just come up and apply and, and give it a shot. So I applied, I got the job and that was like around 1987. And that's how I got into IT. And then five years later, we got acquired by HP and I effectively started my career all over again. I had become a manager of the data center over that five year period. Um, HP bought us. They obviously didn't need a manager to run a Unisys mainframe anymore um, at HP, as you might imagine. Um, So I had a choice to either go work in a data center somewhere uh, on MPE systems or uh, do PC support uh, in a client server environment. So I elected to downskill myself or down level myself effectively um, to start in an area that I thought had a long future ahead of it. And um, So that's how I got into modern IT, and and my career at HP lasted for another nine years after the acquisition, Um, and I went through six different uh, um, uh, levels of seniority, taking on larger and larger responsibility over the course of that nine years um, before um, jumping out into the startup market. But uh, the privilege I had at HP was not only traveling the world, but uh, being responsible for virtually every part of a large organization's, um, infrastructure platforms.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, I appreciate you bringing up, uh, mainframes because, sure. um, you know, let's talk about, let's talk about mainframes a little bit. I mean, containers. Um, so, yeah. you know, I mean, let's, let's, uh, let's get into those container things, right? Like what's, sure. um, what do you think's kind of going on with containers today? I mean, obviously they've had a, a, a meteoric rise in the, in the short history here. Like what is the container story like today? Uh, where's kind of container management at and, and how are these, you know, cloud native frameworks driving um, this container story, or are they, you know, even doing
2: that? Yeah, it's it's both more mature and less mature than um, it needs to be. Um, the The interest in the market is um, meteoric, right? Everybody, or I should say, almost everybody, is talking about containers. But we do have to still worry a little bit about the fact that um, those of us living in places like Austin or New York or Boston or um, San Francisco and Santa Clara, places like that have a little twisted view of what IT is and what IT can be. Um, And so we have to be careful about making assumptions about how fast and how broadly um, containers are being adopted just based on on the number of downloads of Kubernetes or Docker from the websites. It's not really a good indicator of production use in everyday IT organizations. That being said, the tools like Kubernetes um, and others are maturing very quickly and people are realizing the, the opportunity associated with containers. Um, but today, the vast majority of container use is still around net new applications that are designed to be cloud native. And I, um, I, I'm i probably wearing out this uh, question slash statement, but um, I think it's still, a pr- apropos, and that's um, even though it's, you know, didn't start out with containers, but the, you know, the cloud native part of it is that, you know, most of us, when we talk about uh, who's solved this problem, um, what name do we usually bring up as a reference? Netflix, right? How long have we been bringing up Netflix? Since what, like 2011-ish, something like that, maybe a little bit earlier even. So why are we still all talking about Netflix? because it's freaking hard and building truly distributed, truly cloud native applications at scale is really hard. And then the other piece is that containers were meant for an application like Netflix, even though I'm not even sure if they're using containers yet, but it is meant for something like that. Containers, when you're talking about cloud native, as opposed to just efficiency and, and more agility for the developer, et cetera, Containers meant for microservices um, and geo distribution. Well, the vast majority of of applications used in a company, in the average company, support people in one or two places, work perfectly well on what they're on today, um, don't need vast uh, amounts of extra capacity at, at a moment's notice um don't need to have distributed databases in three different geographies that synchronize with each other uh, throughout the day um and the vast majority of those applications weren't originated in the company they were bought from somebody so even if the company wanted to tear them apart they can't because they don't own the software so um containers have the attention that they deserve um, and they will, I believe, take on a much larger portion of work over time as people develop applications or as SAS providers build based on containers. But, um, to assume that somehow containers are going to automatically take over the average data center, uh, over the course of the next 18 to 36 months is probably a stretch for any of us to believe.
1: Yeah. So, uh, Mark, I read a, a blog po- post you did on the new stack recently, um, specifically around uh, container usage, you know, facilitating the reason people use containers, right, is to facilitate yep. the deployment of microservices-based applications. And right. the comment that I, I saw in there that, I, that struck me the most was if the importance of containers can be encapsulated into microservices, which you just talked about, uh, this is still pretty unattainable for most organizations. So why are we still talking about it? So the, I guess the question is, like, why are we still talking about it? If it's that kind of eighty twenty rule, like what's well, the we're what's talking, the f- we're talking the about a
2: future for two reason, right? We're talking about it for two main reasons. One is because there is there is almost always a, a modicum of truth in every story, right? And there is a lot of truth in the potential opportunity of containers, as to some some of which I illustrate in my blog. Um, but the reality is is you know we've all worked for and 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 or currently work for technology companies and in the end if technology sells we make money if technology doesn't sell we don't make money and there is a lot of value for the companies in the space whether it's google getting more people on kubernetes or whether um uh you know it's docker getting more people to uh you know buy into their services um there is a lot of opportunity there for the companies in this space. And they want to realize that as soon as possible, as you might imagine. I mean, we just saw that CoreOS got bought by, um, red hat. 250 million. Isn't bad. They didn't do bad, but I'm sure that 250 million wasn't what they were thinking about a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. Right. I would say they were probably thinking about something more like four times that valuation. And I would argue that they were probably lucky to get what they got by getting it now. Um, but as I illustrate in my blog, there are um, for those companies that want to think about um, how to actually own containers in production. They want to take that leap in in owning them and managing them successfully. There are a significant number of other opportunities associated with developer agility, uh, reduced impact um, on infrastructure, meaning you're using less infrastructure and you're being more efficient, um, uh, faster release times, potentially better security, depending on your management platforms, et cetera. So those are all real opportunities, even if all you're doing is taking the code from a virtual machine and wrapping in a container and putting it as is on a cloud somewhere.
0: Yeah. And so like, as we talk about these new applications and, you know, where the efficiencies are going to come from. Uh, you know, just out of curiosity, you know, you had a, a kind of unfortunate vacation in a place called Monaco here recently.
2: Yeah, yeah uh, that was tough. Yeah. Was and tough.
0: so you you spoke at Data Cloud Europe and you were talking about AI disruptions and data centers. And, you know, I don't want to I don't want to just hammer on AI. Um, and, you know, I'll also say go ahead and say um, blockchain so I can get both those out of my yeah, mouth. Sure. Um, yeah. But like, you know, as we focus on those kind of things, does is that or things like that what is going to cause the um, container, um, the, the actual in production container usage trajectory that you're expecting, or where do you see that happening?
2: Well, I mean, there's as much as I hate to say it, uh, um, considering that, uh, I, you know, I just made a, a year plus salary on, um, on the idea of containers being mainstream, um, is that there's the biggest, some of the biggest drivers, for changing how we deploy and manage uh, IT workloads are at the very edge. And those drivers are things like uh, IoT. Um, and IoT certainly will be collecting data that will be used by AI. Um, how most AI applications will be designed and distributed, I'm not an expert. So I, I wouldn't even want to venture a guess whether they're gonna be better in VMs, better on bare metal or better in, in um, containers or some combination of the above. but Many of the applications that um, will generate scale and complexity for the average IT organization are likely to use serverless um, and are likely to be at the edge. And they'll likely be, as well, to overuse the word likely, um, uh, be um, a larger scale, right? And so the scale, if you guys are open to the idea of talking about why I think that's so important to this discussion, is that. One of the messages that I've been pushing for about three years now in various blogs and talks that I've done at events is the notion that today, the average IT organization, if you were to say that the average IT organization spends $100 on IT, 95 to $97 of that 100 are spent on supporting the internal customer, making sure that the three of us have PCs, we have network connections, that we have access to an ERP system, et cetera, et cetera. The other 3 to 5% gets spent on an external presence for the company. Maybe there's a little bit of ordering. Maybe there's some catalogs, uh, contact information, things like that. But generically speaking, the vast majority of spend is on the internal customer, the employee. So when you think about things like AI and um, uh, IoT and big data, uh, VR and AR, realistically, what are those good for? right? I mean, they're good for a lot of things. Don't get me wrong. IoT and, 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 and its connection to big data and AI are going to do wonders for efficiency of machine to machine and shipping and logistics and a lot of different areas. But I bet that in the vast majority of companies that are seriously looking at this space right now, that the biggest opportunity is getting closer to the customer, right? So you think about a company like PayPal, right? What is PayPal? PayPal is a bank. But they sp- and, and in theory, they spend 5% of their money on IT. No, they don't. They spend 40% on IT, but 85% of that spend is called engineering. Right? But it's all IT. And so if you take the PayPal example and you, and you overlay transformation on the average company as they look to get closer to the customer, as they look to put technology in the hands of the customer, give them tools that are more interactive, more and more companies are going to start looking like PayPal and Netflix and eBay and Yelp and LinkedIn, et cetera, et cetera. As that happens, there's a, 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 in my mind, a basic fact that all of them are going to have their 2001 or 2002 Google moment where they realize we can't just continue to build and deploy servers like we have been. We have to think of this a different way. So they can't just throw more bodies and hardware at the problem. They're going to have to think about containers managing et cetera, et cetera.
1: So Mark, you brought up, um, you know, this kind of PayPal model of, of the spend being, you know, 40 to 50%. What's, what's kind of that realistic spend to keep the lights on. And, and did they get to that model uh, one because of efficiencies, but because the business understood the value of technology and it and they gave them more money, which allowed them to spend on new systems of engagement, or was it because they drove, if they sell the same money today that they had, you know, last year, they drove so much efficiency into it that they are able to free up money to spend on new systems of engagement.
2: Well, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, but if you, if you think about uh, where um, PayPal came from, P- PayPal wasn't born from a, um, you know, a, A bank of Nevada, a bank of uh, Austin. PayPal was born um, in the technology space. They were born to deliver banking capabilities via technology. So their technology footprint was giant from the day they started as compared to a traditional bank, right? So um, I don't know exactly how efficient they are in their IT spend for traditional IT uses, um, I know a little bit about what they do from a um, systems and engineering perspective for delivering PayPal, the banking service that they do online, and I think they do a pretty good job there. But you have to keep in mind that it's in this new model, uh, as is you know, R&D and manufacturing for any other company. We can't continue to look at it as a cost center. We look at We have to look at it as this is where we make our bread and butter. So opportunity isn't just in making it more efficient, opportunity is in delivering new and better services that drive better revenue. And um, so that's, a, and that's one of the reasons why more IT organizations have not taken on the engineering role that they could because most companies still think of the IT organization as a cost center, right? And IT is in fact modern manufacturing and as modern manufacturing, uh, it should get the same kind of investment and opportunity and have entrepreneurial spirit around how it delivers new opportunity to the business, um, as any manufacturing company would apply to their own.
0: Yeah, I I feel like that becomes a bit of a, a chicken and the egg type argument, right? Like, uh, it today is not adding value and is a cost center, uh, and is therefore not you know not bringing that kind of um, entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, and as a result, the the business chooses not to have faith, and maybe you know. Uh, uses other lines of business to invest in other ways in in technology outcomes. Uh and therefore, you know, IT gets diminished and therefore maybe the, the, the sum total value of the of the um mission is uh is fractured, right? So you know, there there has to be something where like you know it's I'm sure there's a lot of people who would love to add value. And that's where I think when you look at something like containers, right? If an organization had an opportunity for X amount of time to just kind of rip and replace and start their Strategic investment over, it's very difficult yeah. to do. Right, it's just like manufacturers who have you know who get entrenched into certain things and can't retool. Right, like right. Uh, you have to drive out the value of what you've already spent on, rather than just hold up, stop. This is how we would do it today if we would do it. Um, it's almost like businesses, as it relates to IT, have forgotten what a sunk cost is. And so, right.
2: no. It, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, you're it. Go. Uh, I was just going to add to that a little bit. I mean, because you're absolutely right. Um, from my perspective, the way I look at the chicken and the egg in that t- analogy is that, uh, and I'm going to start right at the top. Uh, I, I, as a leader, I take significant responsibility for what I do, how I act and, um, and how uh, my or- part of the organization delivers as any leader should. Um, I am a firm believer and I didn't make up this line initially, but I've stolen it uh, for the last few years that teams don't fail. Leaders fail right? So who is a leader in a company? It's the CEO. If a CIO is failing, then the leader of the company is likely doing something wrong. What's really happening in most cases, is not that every CIO is good and the CEO happens to make them fail, but the CEO hires who they expect to, to hire. If they're looking for someone to come in and break things and create an innovative culture for the company, then they're more likely to hire someone that fits that model. If they're looking for someone that'll come in and reduce risk and manage cost, then they're likely to hire someone like that. And they can't expect that person to be Batman over all of a sudden when they hired an accountant, right? It just it just doesn't work that way. And so, um, unfortunately, um, many companies today are still thinking that IT is. For lack of a better definition, this is a line that I made up several years ago, um, that IT is, in fact, defined to reduce the cost of IT, right? I mean, is that the dumbest thing you've ever heard? IT was created to reduce the cost of IT. So if we can get rid of IT, look at that. Wow, no more cost.
0: Brent, you sound stressed out over there. (laughs) I I think Mark has Brent speechless for the first time in 78 episodes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, you know, it, it, it's absolutely, we, we hear about it every single day uh, for those of us, you know, that talk to customers all the time, but it's true. Our budgets are shrinking. They're going somewhere else, right? The, the risk of, of, you know, quote unquote cloud. And then and by that, I mean, public cloud uh, continues to come up and like, we're figuring out ways to write ourselves out of jobs and continue to drive costs cost and efficiency, which look absolutely to your point earlier, if 90 to 95% of, of IT's budget is keeping the lights on, that's a problem. There's a lot of technical debt. So I believe that, that they need to be driving that. Um, but earlier you talked about if the, if the executives and the technical team, the, the CIO or whomever are not communicating and they're continuing to report into the CFO, like that's a problem. If you don't yeah. have a seat at the table, then nothing's going to change, and you're going to become more and more irrelevant and reduced right. to a cost center.
2: Well, it's, it, it, this um, uh, may or may not be as important as I think it is, but um, uh, I wrote a, a blog, I don't know how many years ago now, several years ago now, um, on the idea that the CIO is the CEO of IT, right? And the basic analogy Relative to that isn't just to say well, they're the senior most person in IT. Well, then you could say the CMO is the CEO of, um, of Marketing, but I don't think the analogy plays out the same way and, and here's my explanation If you look at what a CIO's responsibility is for they they have responsibilities to define solutions and opportunities for everywhere from facilities to marketing from R&D to sales from finance to this office of the CTO or CI or um, CEO, the as part of that, a big part of the CIO job ought to be creating vision and maintaining customer connectivity, right? Customer interaction. What's the job of a CEO for a company? Creating vision, staying in contact with customers, right? I mean, in the in the end, that's their job, right? Sure, yep. you got to work. Money, you got to worry about a little strategy here and there. You got to do that kind of stuff. But in the end, that is their job. And if a CIO treats that the job that way, they're much more likely to be in tune with the CEO. And if the CEO allows that to happen, um, then you're much more likely to have an, uh, an IT organization that fully that is fully integrated into the business is not a separate organization, but is in fact the business. And when it's like that. You have people like you or me or uh, anyone else that we know in IT living and breathing in the different departments, doing the jobs, seeing what people do, attending staff meetings and contributing ideas and opportunity to solve problems that they see as part of their daily life for the broader organization or create opportunity that otherwise wouldn't be discovered. I mean, it's, it's I believe, I could be wrong, but I believe that those of us who have experience Uh, in IT for a number of years have a higher propensity for walking past a situation or through a situation and identifying a potential technology solution for that problem. Whether that's because we don't like mopping floors and we want something else to do it for us, or whether it's because we don't think we should have to walk to a printer on the other side of the building all day, or something much, much bigger than that. That's the IT vision, right? That's the IT opportunity within the business. And if you're, if you're kept locked up in the, in the proverbial seller and just said, you know, create code, save me money, reduce my risk. Um, you don't get that kind of benefit.
1: Yep. It's a, it's a brand issue for people in IT plain yep. and simple. Yep. I, I've seen customers recognize this, create, um, you know, private clouds and say, making brand like swag t-shirts websites and they're going out and advocating this thing that they built and the fact that they they can offer services and differentiated services so they're yep. in, in in that respect that cio is enabling his people or her people as a as a ceo would yep right running it as as a true business and creating that's a right. new brand identity so that's that's cool and refreshing to see that happening more and more
2: yep agreed
0: yeah, and it's funny because on the other side of that where you were talking about uh, the propensity of people in IT to uh, you basically go solve a problem. Um, I, you know, we, we also see this with employees just in general, right? Like, do you want to use your, your powers of invisibility for good or for evil? Um, and like the good ones are out there trying to drive the business forward. Uh, and the other ones who are equally as intelligent are doing things like figuring out how to VPN in and uh, punch the time clock so that they don't actually have to be on time right? Like right. equal amounts of um, entrepreneurialism and creativity, but like, where did you apply it, right? Did you apply it to business outcomes or to your own personal value or frankly, just to skirt the system because you didn't like to get up on time, right? So right. Well, uh,
2: yeah. it's all the same power. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. And to to add to that a little bit, um, if you think about, you know, and I, I've, I've had efficiency as a theme in my career from the beginning. Um, I've always have had a bent on being greener Um, and, and being sustainable. And I've always looked at efficiency as an opportunity to get more out of the resources I was provided in IT because generically speaking, we were rarely given more than we needed. Generally, we had less than we thought we needed. So finding more ways to free up those dollars just made sense and efficiency was a way to do that. But, and this is a big but, is that if what you're doing, if I say, Brett, I want you to spend all day finding efficiency, that's great. Maybe he goes out and maybe he spent. He finds efficiency that saves me $15,000 this month and $25,000 next month, and then maybe next quarter he finds something for $100,000. But what if he had taken and figured out how to get the next business application out three weeks earlier, and he might have saved the company or made the company an extra $5 million, but he didn't do that because instead he's worried about Oh, could I save a little bit of money by reducing the amount of VM or or, um, the amount of uh, email messages we maintain or by, um, you know, uh, stretching the life of some of my servers a little bit farther or finding a little bit better density for my VMs. All of those things are part of the job. But if that's your primary focus, then you're missing the opportunity to do things for the business that actually make a difference.
0: Yeah, it's uh, we literally just had a podcast recently where um, you know, the 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 guest said you know essentially double down or throw it away, which um, I got a tattoo on and uh, David, I'll show it, I'll show it to, show it to you sometime in in private. Um, but in the meantime, you know, like the idea of double down or throw it away is, is exactly what you're saying there, right? Like, do you yep. you you do have to drive out costs where you need to, but if you're spending most of your time driving down costs, uh, yeah, and it, if as compared to spending most of your time focused on new things, then you've doubled down on the wrong side, right? Like you do want to throw, go ahead.
2: Right. I was just going to say, sorry to cut you off, Uh, but um, I was just going to say that uh, when you first mentioned the five months, it took that one company to go to public cloud. You know what my first thought was, did anybody encapsulate the missed opportunity and cost associated with spending those five months? How many people were involved what else could have been done? what was late being released into production, et cetera, et cetera? What was the lost opportunity associated with that five months, and I bet you it's not captured anywhere
0: that'd be interesting, yeah, maybe uh what you need to do is go pop into that blog post and make your comment and see what their response is uh, yeah and i'll I'll be following um yeah, so you know like as we talk about, we roll back just a little bit on the whole efficiency commentary, right um, yep. another one of your blog posts, you said you know to quote. Uh, if you containerize even 30% of your existing environment, you would likely save between five and 15% of your IT expenditures through improved efficiency and uh, higher resiliency. All the all the amazing things that they offer. Um, so, you know how there there's obviously a lot involved with with that. So, does that mean like net new? You just walk out, grab some containers, throw some existing traditional apps, and you're good to go? Or what is that? What's what's the story around that comment?
2: Yeah, there, you know, uh, with any of those kind of comments, there's always a few assumptions that are assu- assumed with them, right? And one of the assumptions is that you have a container strategy in mind already, right? If you That you believe that there's an opportunity for de- building and defining containers, container-based or um, cloud-native-based applications that would benefit from the use of containers in all of the ways possible. Um, That being said, if you have that strategy, if you already have a plan for management and and operating um, in containers, then you have the tools sitting around waiting for you. It's kind of like, you know, you don't want to build a six foot trench uh, in your front yard on your own if you don't have a shovel, if you don't have a pick, if you don't have a jackhammer, if you don't have a cement mixer. Um, On the other hand, if you just built your own pool in the backyard, which justified buying all that stuff and then you reuse that stuff to build your own six foot trench, that's a no brainer. And the same thing applies to the container space. If you've made the investment or think it makes sense to make the investment in all the tools that make containers ownable and manageable, then the next big opportunity for you when you're not putting net new applications on it is to take some of your existing infrastructure, reduce the impact on, on where they have to be installed, how much infrastructure they use, and how much of a headache it is for your developers to work with them.
1: So Mark, you're telling me that I can't just buy some containers, deploy them, that I need a whole bunch of other stuff. To oh
2: no, you work? can. I mean, you can, I mean, it'll kill you, <laughs> but you
1: can. <laughs> That's a little tongue in cheek, but <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah, I think you kind of, you hit it on the head there. It, like, it just, it takes, it takes more than than simply saying, I want to use containers. There's a, right. there's a whole ecosystem surrounding it and Either you you, you double down on it or you don't.
2: Yeah, if I could throw in a quick analogy, and and my friends will will say I love calling myself the king of analogies. But um, if you think about the container space right now, um, we are somewhere around 1915 in the automotive market, maybe even a little earlier than that, maybe 1910. And when I was going down to the car dealership, assuming there is such a thing in 1910, and I bought a car there's somebody in the front of the car dealership saying, Hey Mark, we'd like to buy or sell you some uh, capability to use a road and stoplights and buy insurance and get pulled over by a police car and uh, paint lines on the highway. And I'd be like, what are you talking about, man? There's nobody ever on the road. And I don't even care if I go on the wagon tracks, I'm just going from my house to my friend's house, five miles away. This car thing is just for fun. Right? So the container space today for most companies, is very much like that. Everybody wants to play with containers. Everybody realizes that there's an opportunity with containers, but they haven't played with them deeply enough yet to understand that the downstream ownership needs stoplights and insurance and security protocols and street signs and all that stuff, and few people are at that point yet.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting interesting dilemma, and I think the dilemma speaks to why there is... Uh, so much interested interest in essentially uh, operationalizing as much of IT as possible, right? It's uh, you know people make the argument of like you know are you you know are you going to make your own sandwich, right? And they they do things like you know oh well you're going to go bake your own bread. No, there are parts of the ecosystem, and this is, this is where supply chains become you know, the other analogy, right? I'm going to over-analogy yep. you. I'm going to win this analogy, right? <laughs> All like, right. Uh, initial supply chains are extremely vertical because you have to build everything in order to get to where you're going. Uh, but eventually, yep. that, ho- that supply chain flattens out and becomes horizontal um, because there are multiple parts of the ecosystem that are easily managed that allow you to simplify what you're trying to do. Um, And so, you know, I I think there is a there is a push right now with multiple different things to simplify the outcome of trying to solve that problem, whether it's containers and container management, um, whether it's big data and the idea of like the citizen data analyst, because there's not enough data scientists out there to actually do data science everywhere. Everybody needs it, but there's not enough people to actually hire. Um, You know, so the this kind of commoditization of that outcome is where maybe it becomes a little simpler, right? Like you can easily learn how to, u- how to dig that trench and rent a trench digger. And it's actually cheaper than asking somebody else to do it at some point, That's right? right? Initially, That's it may right. not yeah. be. So um, yep. where do you see that break between if you're going to have to containerize, why shouldn't you just use GCP as compared to why you should use it on-prem? Uh, it, or is it a mistake to say you're 100% one or the other? Like, what are your opinions there? I've asked a lot of them. Just say whatever you feel like.
2: Yeah, no, I, um, I, I think that the, the simple answer is the HR answer, was, which is, it depends, right? Um, uh, which, you know, is almost the answer to everything, except can I hit the guy in the cube next to me? Pretty much that the answer is no, but beyond that, it's almost always depends. Um, and so I would say that uh, when looking at um, what you need to do, you have to start with the why. Why am I doing this? Why am I even considering going to cloud? As far as I'm concerned, it's a failed assumption to begin with if the main reason you can come up with for why you're going to cloud is because you think it's going to be cheaper. If that's your main driver, then you have I believe you've failed from the beginning. Uh, on the other hand, if you've realized that there are opportunities associated with being in the cloud that will solve a business growth opportunity or a business efficiency opportunity that enables better spending in other areas, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, then that's a why. And if a particular cloud or a set of clouds can help solve that, then perfect. But otherwise, generically speaking, if you're to look at a cloud, you should do the same kind of due diligence you would when you're looking at the hardware and software and networking, et cetera, that you need to solve for a particular application that you're installing in your own environment. And that's find the deployment platform that best best fits the work need, and is likely to allow you the best ownership model going forward. And some people look at the distribution of clouds available today, and see them as the equivalent of independent vertical platform plays, right? For, for uh, considering that probably is meaningless to most people. Um, they would look at uh, something like GCP and say, well, they've got the best analytics, so I'm gonna put everything that needs analytics into GCP. Um, AWS is the best, you know, basic uh, developer access, so I'm going to put all of my basic developer stuff and and uh, everyday business applications there, um, and then Azure because uh, you know we already we still like using Office 365 and we still develop a little bit on .NET or whatever it is. We're going to use Azure for everything else, or maybe use them as a as a um, counterbalance to what we do on AWS, right? Um, There is that opportunity, but uh, while it's still an ideal, it's not truly easy to do yet and may not be for some time. um, What my vision for IT is that we be able to look at um, where we want to deploy applications as just deployment platforms, right? Uh, To me, uh, GCP, Azure, Oracle Cloud, uh, uh, IBM Cloud, all of these should just be the equivalent of am I going to deploy on a Dell server, an IBM server, a Lenovo server, an HP server, or whatever? Right, that's how it should be. But unfortunately, today it takes a lot more um, effort than that to make decisions for where and how you deploy and how you're going to be able to manage in the public cloud. And so, we still have a lot of work to do there.
1: Yeah, Mark. Look, we, we've talked a lot about the ecosystem in the industry today, and 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 the use for containers and, and public cloud and bare metal and and on premises infrastructure driving efficiencies out of it. One thing that we haven't talked about, but we're we're out of time, is AppSera and in, in, in this platform. What what are you guys offering in this space? Why why what why was it created? What problem was it trying to solve? And then uh then I unfortunately we're have to shut it down, but maybe there's an opportunity to talk deeper about um AppSera in the future.
2: Uh, I would be happy to be on a show again whether we're talking about AppSera or other um, topics. But um yeah Appsera is um was started uh, in the very early days of containers, uh, before K- Kubernetes uh, as a publicly accessible um, a bit of software was even available, uh, before Docker was a thing. Um, we were building, or certainly Derek and the team, before I even joined, were building a platform around the idea of managing and running containers. And uh, the real truth is that we were early to the market. And by the time the market began to mature enough to recognize the opportunity with containers, um, tools like Kubernetes and others had come about. So the, the, the real opportunity for AppSera long-term now that we're acquired by Ericsson is to take what we learned from an enterprise strategy standpoint and a container use strategy standpoint and help um, Ericsson as much as possible with their uh, efforts in rolling out 5G and other technologies that telcos will be needing in a big way to help support uh, growth at the edge, et cetera, going forward. So that's really what I'm looking at helping uh, with right now. Um, and uh, the the initial technology strategy and kind of uh, architectural thinking around what made AppSera a, a usable platform, I'm hoping will be transformed into a broader opportunity across uh, Ericsson, both uh, with its direct customers and internally.
0: And is there, I mean, is there opportunity or even a thought from AppSera's perspective of... Uh, giving back to the, the the open source community as far as you know code or even you know uh, efficiencies that you find because uh, you know obviously there's probably some pretty cool stuff that you're doing uh, especially at the scale of you know telecoms and major operators and 5g um, you know are there are there things you're contributing back or is this all just uh, uh, Ericsson's uh, super awesome IP that everybody can come consume as as long as they're doing 5g which I think is currently everybody but the US so.
2: Yeah, yeah. So we're we're trying to help facilitate that, certainly in the U.S. Um, but um, we are we're looking at a few things that might uh, end up in the um, in the community, both uh, um, potentially in the OpenStack community and in the CNCF community. So uh, we'll see. Uh, part of the uh, issues we're working with, just to be perfectly open, is part of the issues we're working with right now is is how we would do that under the current ownership strategy within Ericsson, because Ericsson has their own. Um, legal process for how that happens. So we're trying to work through that. But we are looking at um, at doing a much broader um, contribution to the open source community.
0: It is always legal, isn't it? It's always legal. It is. Yeah. It is. Um, and so, you know, the other thing is, there's obviously, you, met, you, know, you mentioned all of the scale and the, the need for scale and, you know, frankly, some of the con- management and things like that. Is there, you know, like, what are your thoughts on as we talk about open source and stuff like that? Like, it feels like, a lot of this uh you know container management and orchestration everything we 're having to do is just being heavily driven by the like i i mean proliferation sounds like an understatement of open source or even you know you know open type projects right like uh i mean like every every vertical has thirty two different uh applications that are attacking that one part of the stack right so um is that part of what's driving this kind of you know even maybe even standardization type issue with containers is that there's so many options right now that it's, it's hard to figure out who's the, who's the right option.
2: Well, I think it is. And it's, I think it's also um, the very notion that, you know, right. The original thinking behind containers was the idea that you'd have more portability and shareability of the unit, the work unit. Right. And in the, initial designs of tools like Docker Swarm, and Kubernetes, and uh, Mesos, and others, um, it was actually, uh, at at many levels, uh, potentially putting a roadblock on being able to do exactly that. So even though um, it may still be a utopia idea to think that we can just put our containers wherever we want to, whenever we want to, because we still have issues like data gravity, among other things, To make a quick call out to dave mccrory (laughs) um but um the the reality is is that without a focus on a common um and or at least standardized management platform for containers then we're hobbling containers before they really get into production in in a big way right and so uh i'm um still remaining optimistic that uh, much of the work that's happening in organizations like the CNCF, et cetera, will be on uh, attempting to lead us to the point where a a common set of tools, even if only used across your own company, will allow you to share and move workloads from one part of the organization to the other, manage them consistently, apply policy consistently, et cetera, so that um, we can avoid some of the things that we've seen historically, where even though it may be one IT, in a company like Walmart or GE or whatever, what we really know is that every island of IT resource set might as well be another world, right? You can't just move work from one place to another. You can't just share. You can't model security between the two of them, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Well, Mark, we are out of time. This has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, I learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners will too. How can we contact you, learn more about uh, what you're doing out there and where you're speaking next? I see you on Twitter.
2: Yeah, I'm on Twitter under um, M-T-L-E-10, M-T-H-I-E-L-E-1-0. And And um, uh, I'm regular. I used to be more regular, but I occasionally post blogs on my LinkedIn profile under Mark Teely. And um, I have some old blogs uh, still up on the AppSara website under the blog link there. And I am... Speaking in um, Singapore in um, the middle part of March uh, at Data Datacloud. Uh, I'm speaking at a CIO event, uh, kind of an invite-only CIO event in um, uh, Gold Coast, Australia, the week after that. Um, and um, I'm speaking at Container World uh, uh, later on uh, this month in Santa Clara. So those are the nice. next uh, uh opportunities to find me out uh, roaming around in the public. Brett,
0: that Absolutely. sounds Absolutely. Like, that sounds like an invite. I mean Singapore, Gold Coast, Lobo Santa Clara. Yeah. I feel like we got to Come on out. Yeah. Come on
2: Absolutely.
1: out. Absolutely. Well, so hey, look, you're on a plane a lot, right? Clearly you're worldly. Uh what are you reading in your spare time and it can be related to the industry or not?
2: Yeah, um it's interesting. You know, my uh, uh the book that I'm in the middle of reading right now, um uh, because I'm I'm always interested in the human equation. I believe that uh, as leaders, if we don't take the human equation into account, and I don't know if anybody else calls it the human equation, that's just my uh, uh, term of phrase, um, but um, if you don't take the human equation into account, you're, you are going to fail in whatever activity it is that you're pursuing, at least in the long run, if not in the short run. And so the book I'm reading right now, in, and I apologize, I'm going to um, forget the author's name, but you can certainly find it under the title, uh, is Sapien's. And it's effect- effectively a short history of humankind. And um, it's it's an incredible insight into what potentially got us to where we are today um, and how those transitions throughout our history affect who we are and how we are and how we respond to the environment and how successful we can be, et cetera. Uh, and I find that very powerful. Um, so that's that's what I'm reading now. And I would highly recommend that to anyone. Another book that... I read not too long ago was, uh, Sam Harris, um, moral landscape, which I think everyone should read and then put under their pillow and then read again. And then when they're done reading it, read it another time and then tape it to their wrist and carry it with them everywhere they go. (laughs) Um, because it really is a statement about what we could be versus what we have been. And, um, so I'm all about that as far as, uh, the kind of stuff I like to read and occasionally I mean, on a daily basis, I read blogs. I read things from people like um, Rob Hirschfeld and Dave McCrory and um, uh, uh, so many others in the industry that I uh, think highly of as far as the quality of their content. People like James Urquhart, who's at AWS now, and and, um, others.
1: Very cool. Well, thank you for that. And look, your books are fantastic recommendations. At the end of the day, it's all about people. So um, let's keep it that way. So with that, let's shut down the... Podcast for today. Thanks for being on, Mark. This was fantastic. Uh, Again, we learned a lot. I hope you, everyone out there, learned as well. Um, If you have recommendations, comments, feedback about today's podcast, let us know online. Hit us up at the Hot Aisle on Twitter. Hit Brian and I up on Twitter as well, and hit up Mark. Let him know how we did. Uh, But we're always open to to feedback on new topics. Uh, If you're interested in being on the show, let us know. With that, the Hot Aisle is concluded for this Friday. My name is Brett Piotti.
0: And I'm Brian Carpenter.
1: And Mark, thanks again for being on today.
2: Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. I enjoyed it.